This is Buck's First Thoughts, the news you need to get through your day in 45 minutes. Make sure you subscribe on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that we've had to learn the hard way on the right side of the political spectrum, conservatives in the last few months, is that control of institutions really matters. It isn't just something that you can leave to chance because the left views this as, as a vocation into itself, right? I mean, this is something that they do as a matter of strategy. They want to be, uh, they want to be in charge of things. They want to be in charge of the schools, of Hollywood, of the media. They want to make the decisions about who gets into elite educational institutions. They want to be the ones who hold the door, who are the gatekeepers, and then they can mold society in their image. And we're just beginning to see now among conservatives, among Republicans, a willingness to finally push back against this in a way that matters, perhaps because we're defending on our own five yard line at this point on these cultural issues, on schools, on so many things. But it has finally crossed over. We've finally seen that if we allow this to continue, politics is, in fact, downstream from culture. And if they control the culture and the institutions of culture, we will be in a place we cannot win because the country will have decided to move past what we believe, move past what we think. And, you know, one area where there's actually a lot of control that they're always instituting over us is on the Internet, which is the primary means of communication. It's how a lot of us not only do our jobs now, but also talk to everybody, buy things. But they watch everything you do. You know that, right? But you can anonymize your connection so that you can surf the Internet freely without wondering who will get a hold of your search history or your viewing habits or what they'll do with that information. Do you want these private companies that are now working closer and closer with the government to have the data on everything you type, every website you go to? That's why I use ExpressVPN. These companies can't see my IP address at all. My identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. and My data is encrypted for maximum protection. Beside hiding all my internet activity, what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. I just download the app on my phone, you just set it up, and then you run it, and you're protected. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies. This is a must, all right? This is something that you have to have. You think of it like insurance for your home, okay? You got to do this. You must protect your privacy online with ExpressVPN. Defend your rights. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. You'll get three extra months of protection. That's right. Three free months when you go to expressvpn.com slash buck. Florida civics curriculum will incorporate foundational concepts with the best materials, and it will expressly exclude unsanctioned narratives like critical race theory and other unsubstantiated theories. Let me be clear, there's no room uh, in our classrooms for things like critical race theory. Teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other is not worth one red cent of taxpayer money. So we will invest in actual, solid, true curriculum, and we will be a leader in the development and in, in, in implementation of a world-class civics education. A world-class civics education. This is what Florida is 
on a pathway to now, thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis in public schools. That's right. People should learn the truth about how government works, how their country works. And we shouldn't allow for this brain rot of critical race theory to continue to spread all across campuses, all across not just high school, but now uh, grade school, grammar school curriculum. Ron DeSantis is increasingly feeling like the leader of the Republican Party. I know that, that Donald Trump still holds the, for a lot of people, holds the reins of the GOP's future. But Ron DeSantis is showing with his actions. Ron DeSantis is accomplishing with his results so much that at this point you have to figure that he's a likely 2024 presidential candidate. But it's even more than that. He's creating a template for other states to follow because now with the Democrats in control of the House and a de facto majority in the Senate, what we see, and of course the White House under Biden, who everyone's realized now really is just a pass-through for the left-wing agenda. I mean, it's the, it's the Obama administration with Biden as a puppet, right? Biden just sort of shuffles around, yeah, you know, or sort of just say some things and then I kind of say things like this. And I come down here and I read the speech and I mumble some stuff. And then I say some things kind of loud so you think I'm still awake. And then I mumble some more stuff. And, and I pretend to be a great leader because, you know, I'm Joe Biden. Yeah. People are figuring out what this was all about. It's exactly what I told you it would be, so you're not surprised at all. But we need states to step up and show a better way forward. You'll notice that it's also Florida that has taken the lead and trying to create protections for people from social media companies effectively defrauding them. These companies were built on the back of a promise. The promise was that you'd be able to share information, you'd be able to use their platforms without respect to your politics, that they were platforms for the free exchange of ideas, that they were First Amendment defenders, that they were nonpartisan, nonpolitical. That's an absolute lie. And it is shifting our national conversation about every issue on a day to day basis. And if we don't tackle this, we'll lose. If we don't change this, we cannot win the future. It will already be decided for us. And this is also why critical race theory in schools, we are paying attention to this now because you see that the, the left has has a need for an overarching narrative of hysteria. Uh, the, the left is defined by a widespread psychological defect right now of, of overwhelming fear from things that are either a minimal risk or a very limited challenge, very limited threat against them. I mean, the, the big example is white supremacy, which I'll be talking to you more about. As you know, the, the term white supremacy, if you just look uh, for a Google search, of white supremacy use in the media 10 years ago versus now, it's just taken off like a rocket ship. This has become a narrative. And what they've done is just like in the 90s when racism was used as a club to beat people that you didn't agree with uh, politically on, and on the right generally, but also to keep people on your own side on, in line, right? If you're a liberal, now leftist is, I think, the more appropriate term, so I'll use that one in place of. If you are a leftist, and you step out of line, you know, the, they, they sometimes will feed their own to the mob. You know, they'll feed their own to the wolves 
in order to show just how woke they are. This is a mechanism of of control. It's a mechanism of, of achieving power and of control. And critical race theory is an indoctrination. In fact, I wrote my I wrote my college thesis at Amherst uh, in part about Herbert Marcuse and critical race theory and the way that it was used to justify campus speech codes, uh, which have been around for a long time. But the campus speech codes were an early indicator at colleges and universities of where we were heading. We were going to a place. It's where we are now. You say things I don't like. That's basically violence. Speech equals violence. That took decades to create that perception, to create the groundwork so that it would finally take root. And we were warning about it. We're saying, look at how insane they are at Harvard, at Yale, at Michigan State, at Mizzou, at Reed College, at UCLA. I mean, you go all over the country, UT Austin. Look at how crazy some of this stuff on campus is. But because we are conservatives, because we're people that don't sit around constantly terrified about everything all the time, we said, "Okay, they'll grow out of it. I think that was our attitude. They'll grow out of it. They'll recognize that this is foolish. They'll recognize this doesn't make sense. And now we live in a society where we see, oh, no, they didn't grow out of it. And in fact, they run some of the most important. They have seized some of the commanding heights of our culture of politics, of the economy, of corporations, of the the nodes of control. Sure, half the country can be Republican and half the country is by party affiliation, roughly speaking. But if they control the corporations, Hollywood, the news media, uh, not just college campuses now, law schools. I mean, international relations school, I can tell you, because I've actually done some some study at them. Uh, are, are basically like communist enclaves. I mean, they're completely insane. And if you get a master's in international affairs, it means you're effectively, uh, you know, they're creating a stooge to go work for the UN and who thinks that America is really bad. All these other countries do great things for the world. America is really bad. But if they control all these things and then they also control the credentialing institutions, so then it becomes a, well, we're just the smarter people. We're just smarter than you are. No, it's just because you create the reality on these campuses of the people that you want. You decide that you're in a place that you can create a socially engineered future of this country. And that's what they've done. And critical race theory is essential in that. Critical race theory is a major component of this. Um, it's, the, it's the view, if you were to just look up a definition of it, that le- law and legal, this from Britannica.com, law and legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that are used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color. According to critical race theory, racial inequality emerges from the social, economic and legal differences that white people create between races to maintain elite white interests in labor markets and politics, give rise to poverty and criminality in many minority communities, giving rise to. The CRT movement officially organized itself in 1989 at the first annual workshop on critical race theory, though its intellectual origins go back much further to the 1960s and 1970s. I mentioned to you that I had studied Herbert Marcuse, Back when I was in college, which now is about 20, almost 20 years ago. And uh, he is somebody who his ideas, his view 
of a society in which everyone is constantly competing with each other. I mean, he's basically a Marxist and he's a, a cultural or a, a, a social Marxist. Although Marx believed in, in his theories, of course, affecting every aspect, every ta- every facet of society, including family relations, including relations between husband and wife. Marx didn't think there was just some solely economic rationale for everything. Uh, it wasn't just an economic interest. It was all of society. But this belief system, you'll notice that they, they really got it going on campuses officially in the 1990s, which is also when you saw the rise of PC culture. PC culture was the precursor to cancel culture. PC culture led to everything is racist. Racism is the reason for all these problems in society. Even if you don't do something or you yourself are not racist, you are a part of a racist system. Therefore, you are furthering racism by your very existence, unless you are, of course, not white or you are somebody who agrees with all of our doctrine. Oh, and actually, if you're a minority who doesn't agree, they will take away your minorityness. They will say that you don't you don't really count. This is how the left has created a perception that, you know, Justice Thomas, for example, is not really representative in some way of the black community. And they'll say really horrible things to that end. But that's what they'll say. Critical race theory is the wellspring for so much of our social misery and despair and so much of what tears us apart. And it undermines foundational concepts of what this American experiment is all about, that we are individuals alike in uh, equal in dignity and grace and made in the image of God. That is all cast aside with this notion that wherever we are, whoever you are, your individual actions, your decency, your your character, your ethics don't matter. You're part of a collective, a racial collective, and you have to either make amends or demand amends, depending on where you are, and also be relieved of any individual responsibility. Notice that this is all just a way of shifting power dynamics. People aren't responsible for their own life, for their own actions. It's the collective. It's society. And you can either pay, uh, you know, pay obedience to this. You can either make amends for this or you can be one of the bad people. You can be somebody that is called out. You can be somebody who is considered a part of the problem. You must be not just non-racist, but anti-racist. This all comes from critical race theory. And this is pulling the country apart. It is toxic. And I'm very happy to see that there are some states that are finally saying enough is enough. What happens when critical race theory goes unrestricted when it actually becomes the doctrine when it's what people are are taught they're made to believe or they're brought to believe what kind of things happen well well it erodes your ability to think critically which is of course the irony of this about anything because everything goes into this framework of a racial determinism you're part of a racial collective wherever you are and that has a pull on you your your worth your decency uh who you are in society is largely determined by whatever critical race theory says. So are you a good person? Are you racist? Not racist? Doesn't matter. You have to be an anti-racist, which means doing what they say. And it means seeing white supremacy everywhere, for example. Everything has some white supremacist angle. It means believing the 1619 Project is the true history of America, for example. It means thinking that America is an irredeemably racist and awful place. And, and it creates... 
this this vortex of bad thinking and resentment and divisiveness, which Marxists love because divisiveness, separation of society, especially what is what is generally a, a healthy and prosperous and free society like our own. When you pull people apart, when you create balkanization, you can start to establish control over groups and then you put enough groups together and you have a collective and then you can seize power, which is the point of all of this. But how much can critical race theory uh, change one's thinking? How much can this cultural Marxist approach change one's thinking? They have to get to a point, you see, where objective reality doesn't count anymore. They have to get to a point where you can't even sharing certain facts, saying certain data is de facto racist. What's an example of this? Okay, in New York City, we will often see here a news report where there will be, you know, a a male 24, five foot 10, wearing a hooded sweatshirt. Be on the lookout because just tried to uh, rob someone or just tried to uh, just tried to rape someone in an alleyway or just, you know, shot at somebody. And you'll say, well, hold on a second. Why? I think we need a better description. Can't we have a more of a description if we're supposed to help the police find? No, because depending on the race of the suspect, that itself, the facts of the case could be considered racist, could be construed as racist. This happens all the time. The show cops canceled because they felt there were there was too high of a percentage of minorities involved in arrest situations, even though people's faces are blurred, their identities are protected. It doesn't matter. Just becomes racist. So some aspects of objective reality are therefore racist. Some things that are just true or factual cannot share, cannot say. You know, if, if you were to point out, I mean, even there, there are so many aspects you could see all throughout society. If you point out that Asian-Americans will be talking more, obviously, about this issue, but uh, during the show, but Asian-Americans are discriminated against in colleges. Why is it that Asian-Americans have the highest household income higher than white Americans in a white supremacist society? Why is it that Asian-Americans, including those who arrive as refugees from Southeast Asia, those who arrive penniless uh, from from East Asia or from or, or from South Asia, do very well in America, are prosperous, quickly find themselves in the middle, even the upper middle class. And, and what's different about the Asian experience in America in that regard than other minority groups that continue to struggle? You better only say the allowable narrative or else you're destroyed. You'll be ruined. And that's the way critical race theory works. Um, that, you know, they're, they're, and, and the only allowable narrative is that white supremacy is the reason for all of this. Just so you understand, that's where this is. And when up is down and down is up, and when we can't have agreement upon fundamental facts, then it's just a contest of power. Senator Kennedy yesterday on, uh, on Capitol Hill during a Senate hearing asked an LGBT, LGBTQ activist, Alfonso David, how many biological genders are there? A very straightforward question. This is what he said. Mr. David, let me ask you a question. How, how, many, how many sexes do you think there are? How many sexes? Hmm? How well, many there's genders? a difference between sex and gender identity, if that's what you're getting. No, at. I'm asking biological sexes. How many do you think there are? Well, I would defer to the medical practitioners, but I think there's been studies showing that if you're talking about sex... Sex is defined by many different characteristics and cooling chromosomes. Are there more than are there are there more than two? You could make that argument that they might be. Are more you than making two that argument? Individual. But are well, you making? You, well, I, 
Senator, I can't ignore the fact that they're individuals who are intersex. And so, um, so I'm just trying to, there, it's not I'm bound running out of time. Are there more than two sexes in your opinion? It's not limited to two. Okay. There, there are more than two genders. That's where we are now. You, you heard him. I mean, this, we, we can't get a straight answer on this other than, well, maybe kind of. We don't. That's where we are. This does have a Soviet feel to it. I'm somebody who reads a lot about the former uh, Soviet Union, the totalitarianism of it. Whatever the state told you, you had to believe. Whatever the party told you. Or read 1984 or Orwell, and you can see what a fictional totalitarian state was like. But they actually enacted it in the 20th century in some places. That whatever they tell you, you must not only you must not only accept it without challenging, you must celebrate it. It's not enough to bend the knee. You have to proclaim your allegiance to falsehood now, because if they can get you, if the critical race theorists, if the left in America, which is ascendant and which is in control of so much, can get you to agree to falsehood, they can get you to do anything. A terrible mass shooting in the Atlanta area yesterday. People. Still in in shock as we as we see this uh, more information about Robert Aaron Long, 21 years old, killed eight people, six Asian women, a white woman and a white man. Three hour crime spree, three different spas. I'm sorry, this was on on Tuesday. And uh, there's a lot there's a, a lot of video of this that's now circulating. And this is one of those moments where you you have seen somebody who is. Clearly deranged and evil, and it's it's just an awful story. We live in a in a very big country with a lot of uh, a lot of individuals who, unfortunately, when you got three hundred thirty million people, it only takes a handful of evil crazies to create an incident like this, you know, or or, or will continue to create incidents like this over the course of a year. What do we do about it? Well, there's the 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 first reaction, which is that. We want law enforcement to take action and there there to be swift justice. But then there's the immediate politicization that happens in the media now, too. You see this all over the place. Uh, Let's just let's stick with the facts here, shall we? Uh, Robert Aaron Long has said that he was a sex addict and that he was targeting these massage parlors for what was effectively a a mass assassination um, because they were a temptation to him. That's what he said. Now, I understand that you can't always take the, the word of, of, a, of a clearly deranged and evil person on their motivations, but this does seem to line up with his past. He did go see sex addiction treatment. This guy seems to be something of perhaps an, an incel. Have a, it reminds me of that, the guy who out in California wanted to, wanted to shoot the sorority, the sorority sisters um, and who was a wealthy guy, but would make the, you know, kind of a well-off, spoiled brat guy who would make these videos in his car and said that he was going to go shoot these women. So I believe his name was, uh, well, I'll, I'll look it up. I don't want to say the wrong name. But here's what the Democrats have turned this into right away. I mean, I know, and this is where we're heading, of course. We have a terrible incident, a mass shooting, and now it's, well, what are all the political lanes? And the, the, first, the first one that you see from the news media in an incident like this is that they still find a way to blame this on, oh, that's right, to blame this on Donald Trump. Here is Representative Chu on the murders in Georgia. Play three. Actually, this day was coming because it's been a whole year of ugly 
rhetoric by Donald Trump, who used the word China virus, Wuhan virus, and even Kung flu to describe COVID-19. And we saw a spike recently in places like New York and in California, ugly actions against the elderly and the more vulnerable, including an 84-year-old Thai man who was assaulted and murdered in San Francisco, uh, a 91-year-old man who was assaulted and pushed to the ground in Oakland Chinatown, and in my own city, a man who was beaten with his own cane and then lost part of his finger. So we need to bring attention to this so we can stand together to combat anti-Asian hate crimes. Anti-Asian bigotry is absolutely disgusting. Bigotry of any kind against an individual for their ethnicity, their skin color is is the most uh, disgusting uh, immorality uh, that you can you can come up with. And yet we're going to talk about the politics of this and we're going to say this is Donald Trump's fault. They're going to have to actually deal with the facts. We have to actually look at what really happened here. And in some of the incidents that she names, it is already known that the assailant was, in fact, a black male. Now, I'm not saying because there obviously are people who are uh, fit that profile who are Trump voters. But I have a feeling that there, there's a pretty high likelihood that some of the individuals uh, who are who are African-American and who attacked, in some cases, killed Asian-Americans in some of these incidents. It didn't have a darn thing to do with Donald Trump or the Wuhan virus or anything else. See, when there's when there's an incident that they can turn to their political favor, they are quick. They are quick to to run with the story before they even let any of the facts get in the way. And that's what they did right away. That's what they did at the first opportunity with this. Um, the first chance they got, this was attack Donald Trump. I mean, I could sit here and just keep playing clips. It, it's all about it's all about uh, blaming Donald Trump, who's no longer president and who doesn't even really have that much to say in, in public these days. Uh, here's my here's a guy over at MSNBC. Same thing. It, it's the, the mass shooting in Atlanta is Trump's fault. Play four. We've been talking about things that have been existent in America for quite some time, but enhanced over the last four years with the presidential seal of approval given to intolerance, given to fear, given to suspicion, given to anger, given to saying very little about racial strife in this country and the causes of it, never addressing it, of, of lying, of lying about nearly everything you can imagine from the dangers of the virus to the dangers of racial animosity and what it's doing to our country. And the root of it is in the former president's four years, in his language and in his behavior. And we're still living it. We're still playing it out, and it affects us every day. Now, Donald Trump didn't pull the trigger in Atlanta, but Donald Trump certainly was responsible for the anger and the fear and the suspicion that exists in, in great degree in this country, much more so than ever in the past. And uh, he's not to blame for a history of uh, racial strife in this country, but he certainly is to be blamed for enhancing it with his inaction and his cowardice in addressing it. Blamed for this shooting, Donald Trump somehow. I mean, you, you've you've got to stretch very far to find a way to make this about Donald Trump. This guy had a sex addiction. He's clearly deranged. He's clearly evil. But it's because Donald Trump really 
I just want to know, in, in five years, in 10 years, when there's another mass, there have been mass shootings before this. Unfortunately, there'll be mass shootings after this. Will it still be Donald Trump's fault? I mean, this is this is pathetic. I mean, this isn't a serious argument they're making, are they? Well, no, they they think it is. They, they believe this. You know, what's notable is that we're told that there's this uh, this big spike of of attacks on uh, Asian Americans. I mean, it's, you know, Asian Americans predominantly, sometimes Asians, perhaps who are in the country who are, are not citizens, but Asian Americans. And it's concerning and it's wrong. And there there needs to be action taken here. But we don't really hear very much about who's responsible for the attacks. And what the media then does is they fill in this narrative of, oh, it's actually white supremacy. And that's what they've been doing for the last week or so. There's been a huge spike in attacks on on. I should say huge spike. There's been a, a surge in attacks on on Asians, on assaults against Asians in the last year. And most of the attacks that you'll see, most of the news stories are involving individuals who are not white. So it's interesting that white supremacy is behind this. In fact, I, I, I found a graphic uh, of FBI data based on the number of violent incidents uh, against people, white, black, Hispanic and Asian. And then the offender, uh, the percentage of, of offenders. And sure enough, it's, it's unsurprising, I'm sure, for you to hear that most violence occurs within ethnic groups. So white people are responsible for most violence against white people. Black people are responsible for most violence against black people. Hispanic and Asian, the same thing. Um, black assailants, according to this FBI uh, data, are responsible for 20. This was for 2018. So this is not for even this year. In 2018, we're responsible for 27.5 percent. I'm sorry. Um, yes, 27.5 percent of attacks on Asian Americans. Uh, so there's a a spike in that, uh, or there, there's a substantial number there. The numbers that you see here, here I can give you the the rest of it. You have uh, Asian Americans, 27.5 uh, percent black, 24 percent white for attacks on Asian Americans, Hispanic, 7 percent, Asian, 24 percent, and then other 14 percent. That's the FBI data on this. So the African-American population of the United States is about uh, 13, 14 percent, something like that. The single uh, most likely perpetrator for violent assaults against Asian-Americans based on the FBI data from 2018. Now, we don't have this year's data yet. But we're African-Americans. Um, that's just these are just numbers. These are facts. This is what the FBI data compiled says about this. And I think it's interesting because we're told and, and by the way, attacks on Asians are there, there is a, a, a spread. I mean, it's pretty widely distributed. You have Asians attacking Asians, you have whites attacking Asians, you have blacks attacking Asians, you have a very small number of, of Hispanics attacking Asians, but it, it does happen. Um but we're told that this is all about white supremacy and, and that this is Donald Trump's fault. Well, I mean, what's the data? What's the actual support for that in the numbers? Why would that be the case? Yes, it, it, I guess it's possible that that a number of the the black uh, and there's recent high profile cases. I mean, there was somebody who was just uh, somebody just killed in San Francisco. Uh, Asian-American and what they thought was a hate crime attack. And the attackers were uh, were two black males. And it's possible that they're Trump supporters. I'm not saying it's not. But I, I don't think that if we're looking at the likely motive here, I'm pretty sure that it's 
not actually Donald Trump that has created this mentality. And that's a stretch where you could you could say this about any politician. You start blaming whoever you want for any violent act anywhere because they're being divisive. Someone saying things that are that are divisive can't then be used to claim that a person who attacks another human being who breaks the law isn't fully responsible for their for their actions or isn't, uh, you know, shouldn't be viewed that their motivation shouldn't be viewed based upon the actual circumstances around them. Blame Trump, basically, is what this comes down. Blame Trump. Oh, and blame white supremacy, which we're supposed to believe is everywhere. Our, our whole country is is just soaked in white supremacy now. What a horrible, awful thing. What a terrible way to view the greatest nation that has ever existed on the planet. Uh, but this is what the left believes now, and they'll even take a terrible, tragic incident like this, and they will use it as an opportunity for politics. And that's what they're doing. Uh, but before I begin, I do want to talk about what happened in Georgia, in Atlanta. Uh, it is tragic. Uh, our country, the president and I and all of us, we grieve for the loss. Um, our prayers are extended to the families of, of those who have been killed. And um, it speaks to a larger issue, which is the issue of, of violence in our country and and what we must do to never tolerate it and to always speak out against it uh, the investigation is ongoing we don't yet know we're not yet clear about the motive but i do want to say to our asian american community that we stand with you and understand how this has frightened and shocked and outraged um, all people but knowing the the increasing level of hate crime against our asian american um, brothers and sisters, we also want to speak out in um, solidarity with them and, and acknowledge that none of us should ever be silent in the face of any form of hate. It is true. We, none of us should ever be silent in the face of any form of hate. Hate is, uh, is a terrible thing. It is disgusting. I also think it's very it's worth noting that we have to have these conversations uh, constantly about this from a from a politicized angle instead of using this as an opportunity to bring everybody together on our shared common humanity uh what you see are people immediately retreating into their their preferred political narratives gun control is another one that comes up out of this we're going to hear and I, I haven't seen it quite yet because the the they went with the initial it's trump it's white supremacy even though it does seem to be more a a incel slash misogynist evil hate lunatic situation I, I i don't know i'm not a psychiatrist i don't know how to specifically diagnose this but I also think that we, we have all these we're, we're always told to have conversations about this. And and that's it's fine to have a conversation and we should have conversations about violence in society. But I, I get the sense that Democrats are never really serious about uh, trying to address this stuff in a way that's actually going to fix anything. It, it feels like the immediate discussion switches very quickly to attacking political opponents, to attacking political enemies. It's like the Donald Trump situation. They, they go right after Trump. People are shot. It's a terrible situation in Atlanta. Uh, you have an evil individual acting with hateful motives. It's white supremacy and Donald Trump right away. It'll turn into gun control. And you'll be hearing pundits going on TV uh, saying for for quite some time after this that this this goes in a sense, this incident goes in a column alongside uh, you know, other incidents that everybody who is supportive of Donald Trump, for example, or everybody who doesn't agree with critical race theory is responsible for at some level. Right. 
That's what will be said. That's what will actually happen here. And you'll notice that with the the attempted mass assassination of members of Congress in 2018 by a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, it was not, in fact, create it, it did not you know create a whole narrative of the Democrats because they dehumanize Republicans because they say that Republicans don't want they don't want people to have health care. They don't care about people dying. I mean, the guy was actually firing off an AR-15 at members of Congress yelling this, you know, this is for health care. That's what Rand Paul said, who was there. But that doesn't go on, you know, their their moral side of the ledger as in terms of something baggage that the Democrats, the left has to carry. But immediately it gets politicized whenever there's an ugly incident, even if it's not clear that it ties into the, the preferred narrative of the left, it gets put into this. Uh, situation in this circumstance the same way that when you hear about about anti-semitic attacks in new york city we're told they tried for a while to say the anti-semitic and it was often orthodox orthodox jews who were being attacked on the street or being assaulted um and you know orthodox jews especially uh, hasidic jews orthodox jews you can tell uh, because of their dress and, and because of their appearance what their religious beliefs are and they're being attacked And we're told initially this is part of the intolerance and the white supremacy from Donald Trump. And then it turns out that, no, it's actually it it has in New York City been predominantly minorities, uh, black and Latino men who have attacked Orthodox Jewish people in these in these anti-Semitic taxis, hate crimes. But it's still Trump's fault and it's still white supremacy, which is it's a, a a fascinating version of events isn't it almost like what happens doesn't really matter to the people in charge based on the facts the most important thing is how is this leveraged for political purposes it's harsanyi time our friend david harsanyi in the mix go to nashreview.com for his latest mr harsanyi great to have you sir always great to be here thank you so we have a terrible incident that happens in the Atlanta area, uh, a, a mass shooting. You had, I believe, six uh, of the victims were Asian, two were white. The individual who is in custody, whoever is certain, I mean, the guy's confessed. He's, he's the shooter. He's the murderer, said that he had a sex addiction. And this was some kind of, I don't know, incel rage, you know, murder spree or something. And yet yesterday you had, you know, The Root, uh, a, an online you know, web magazine website, say that this is part of the, the white supremacy pandemic. You had a lot of headlines about how this is white supremacy. What is going on here? Well, every, you know, when everything, when, when everything is synthesized through the prism of racism and race. And you're so used to um, relying on that as, as, as the only kind of, you know, view of the world. And you think everyone functions just like you and sees the world just like you, Um, you know, you're going to say things like that. And it's also, you know, a very easy way to uh, make appropriate a tragedy for your own political cause. You can bash people that you dislike um, and blame them for it. The world is not that simple. It's almost never that simple. And it's certainly in this case, it's, it's complicated and, and not complicated really in, 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 in that it is a terrible tragedy, no matter how you slice it, but it's complicated in what, who knows why this guy did it. And, um, 
I just want to quickly say, even if he had done it for some dumb, ugly political reason, the, the way that they take that and then blame mainstream Republicans or Donald Trump or whatever they're doing, it would still be crazy to say that. And now it's just sort of amped up crazy. And, you know, he, the people you mentioned aren't the only one. I see all these celebrities doing it as well. There's no evidence. They can't even wait for any evidence um, to, to appear before they say stuff like that. It's just insane. It's insanity. Well, I mean, the, by the way, The Root, the magazine, um, actually, the, the, the title or rather the, the line uh, that, that got the, the attention, it wasn't that white supremacy is a pandemic. It is whiteness. The quote was whiteness itself is a pandemic. I mean, I, I really do think that this is now attacking whiteness as a, as a concept has become very fashionable. And and a lot of I mean, you pointed out to, to celebrities and people in news media, you know, it has it's pathetic to watch. But what you'll see are multimillionaire white CNN anchors, for example, who go on air to bash whiteness because it somehow gets them you know, points on the left. It gets them credibility. And it, to me, it just all seems so phony, transparent, idiotic and also really damaging. It's, it's racism. It's real life racism. And I judging people by the color of their skin, which doesn't mean anything, really. I mean, I'm not saying it never means anything in history, but it doesn't really mean define who you are, or what you think or what you do or believe. I know a lot of white people. I disagree with probably most white people I know. And, you know, we disagree on things. We don't, you know, we don't share any kind of um, ideology because we're white. I mean, we share an ideology because we believe certain things. So it's dangerous. And it is all the things that people who fought against racism for real in the past fought against and they embrace it. There's, you know, it's a big joke. I know others have done this and there's memes about it. But the right, the sort of identitarians of the far right and far left, they sound almost the same. You just have to switch colors sometimes, but they sound the same. It is the most dangerous. Uh, I think it's one of the most dangerous beliefs and ideologies right now in American philosophies. Do you think that some of the people who um, we're speaking to David Harsanyi of National Review, you can go to nationalreview.com for his latest. David, do you think that that some of the people who are professing this from the news media from from big perches on TV or or you know well known uh, news or journalistic organizations, do you think they they don't believe it, but they just mouth the preferred slogans of the of the party orthodoxy, or do you think that this has really turned into a a moral panic that has convinced you know you know does Chris Cuomo really think that we're going through a a white supremacy pandemic? I mean, does you know, does Rachel Maddow really think we're going through a white supremacy pandemic, the New York Times editorial board, or do they just do this because it's popular right now to say this? I don't know, maybe a, a bit of both, but I think increasingly, I believe people believe it. I think you can convince yourself to believe anything, especially when you start dehumanizing people you dislike, which is what what they're doing. And it's also, I mean, for someone like Chris Cuomo, let's say, you know, he is not an intellectually curious person. So this is the easiest thing for him to do and to say. And he knows that he'll, he'll have there'll be accolades for saying it, you know, from from people he cares about. Um, he's a privileged life and he doesn't just have a privileged life in the sense that he earned some privilege, you know, that he earned it or that he's rich or whatever. He, you know, he inherited it as well. So I'm not sure that he a guy like that should be able to lecture anyone. 
but about that sort of thing. But um, I think it is a moral panic as well. You know, I used to not think it, but then I see the comments on like Twitter and elsewhere. And I think people are, are tr so tribal and so mad and so hateful of others that they want to bring everything back to something very identifiable like color about hating you know, Donald Trump and his supporters are pretending that they're all white supremacists. Um, I don't know. I, I, I've always said that this divisiveness doesn't really exist in the world itself as much as it does on, you know, social media. But it worries me more and more that this ends in some really ugly and bad way or doesn't end, but becomes something much uglier. Um, and uh, this kind of rhetoric is, is just terrible. Now, I don't blame people, you know, they want to make political arguments. I'm a free speech guy, that's for sure. But I think that people aren't really thinking through what they're saying. Now, uh, David, I wanted to switch to the filibuster because I, I think that the, the thing that conservatives and Republicans have had to learn in, in the last few months, if they didn't already know it beforehand, which maybe a lot of people did in their own way, is that double standards are that, that's not even something the left they're not they don't care they don't feel sheepish about it they don't pretend they don't have double standards they just they, you know when they can do something they want to do it and i think that what we see with the talk of filibuster reform i mean this is just laughable but it's putting the, the smallest of fig leaves over what would be if they do it. And I believe they are going to try to do it. I don't know if they'll be successful, but I believe they will try to do this. Uh, what would be an enormously consequential change to our Congress and how it functions? I mean, they, and they act like it's there's some emergency, some reason it must happen. Now, we, we can't have obstructionism from the White House. I mean, from the, the Republicans, rather. And that's what the White House is saying. This just seems like the most obvious stuff, David. Can you can you imagine complaining about obstructionism a, a less than a week after you signed a two trillion dollar bill that was filled with all kinds of goodies for yourself? I mean, it is just it is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But there are three things about this. One, of course, it's a huge double standard. There are massive hypocrites. They, they used it. They used the filibuster more against Donald Trump in one term than any president has ever had to deal with. And that's fine. They should be able to do that. But they don't care. It's an ends justifies the means argument that they make. The second one, of course, is that if they undo this filibuster, which to me would be the worst thing they could possibly do that I can imagine, because it would allow a, a slim majority to essentially pass gigantic federal direct democracy bills on the rest of the country. It would, I think, create a lot of anger in a lot of red states because there's no consensus, no buy-in, no gen genuine debate. You saw how that stimulus was passed, and imagine that over and over again. Um, it is just to me, I'm a, I'm a real big process guy, and I know that's boring, and I know people don't care that much about it, but the stimulus is one of the few, and it's not in the Constitution, but it is one of the few things still preserving the Tenth Amendment and some basic federalism. The in filibuster, country. you mean? Yeah, the filibuster, sorry. So uh, and the last thing, though, is I'm not, I don't, I'm very worried that it's going to happen, but it might not. I don't understand, really, why they're even bringing it up as much when they don't even have the votes to pass the bills they would need it for. They don't have the votes for a minimum wage. They don't have the votes yet, as far as I know, for a um, for any of the big bills, for H.R. 1, for anything they want to do. Maybe they have it for some sort of uh, gun control bill on universal background checks. But is Manchin going to destroy the filibuster over a bill that gets them what is not a very you know big deal? I mean, I know they pretend that that there aren't background checks, but most guns are background checks. So I don't know. We'll see what happens, but I, I really hope it, it doesn't. 
David Harsani, everybody. Go to NashReview.com to read his latest there. David, always appreciate it, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon.